This is The Ethicist, a podcast from The New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts, Anthony Appia, teaching philosophy at New York University. Welcome, Anthony. Very glad to be here, Amy. And Kenji Yoshino, teaching law at New York University. Hello, Kenji. Hello, Amy. Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about preference and a citizen's obligation to honor those preferences, what to do when faced with the protocols of Zion, divorce and fairness, and how these two things are incompatible. Okay, here is our first question. Dear ethicists, I live in a mid-sized Midwestern city that is just now catching the urbanism bug. My beloved city has stopped the bleeding of decades of population decline and blight, and publications such as yours have taken notice of our revival. Anyway, city developers have taken it upon themselves to turn our decaying warehouses into post-industrial lofts for the privileged class, and it is here that I find myself in a Larry Davidian situation. I've been approved to rent one such loft that is available below the market rate because I make around a particular income level. I'm grateful that the city is granting cuts like this for people like me, yet the issue is that this particular unit is handicap-preferred. The sink is lower, there is no bathtub, just a shower with a low partition separating water from bath tile. In short, this is a unit designed for someone in a wheelchair. I had scruples about even considering this unit. I do not need a wheelchair. When I was seeing the loft, however, the leaser made it very clear that despite advertisements, press, and repeated showings, no actual handicapped person had yet applied. Further, the leaser explained that they would not have shown this unit to my group of eight had they not struggled to rent the unit out. Here I fold back into the quandary and state of my city. With urban revitalization, the competition for places to live has never been higher. Beyond that, I don't work in a lucrative field. I'm a librarian. This affordable housing thing is a huge break for someone like me, and it also affords the opportunity to experience my city's industrial past with a modern lens. It's a dream loft. I haven't decided what to do yet. On one hand, I would maybe spend my lease in the loft feeling guilty pains and potentially taking away someone's legitimate claim. On the other hand, the market is hot, and I would feel like a scrub if I were to pass on the unit and see it go to someone else that isn't handicapped. Someone with more gumption and perhaps less Catholic school guilt. Last night I wondered, what would Larry David do? But then again, signed, name withheld. Well, look, uh, Larry David would take the apartment and so should you. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the best policies for people with disabilities, I think, are ones that advantage everybody. So those, those sidewalk slips that allow wheelchairs to get into the crosswalk. They also help people with strollers and, and wheeled luggage. And, and that means that we can all think of them as, as um, something that's uh, helpful for us. And this, this policy does advantage disabled people because they get first dibs. But it doesn't require that uh, a place be kept empty if there isn't a disabled person, a person with disabilities who needs it. Because it doesn't do them any good to keep an apartment empty when there's nobody with a disability who needs it. So if no such person needs it, the policy says it can go to you. It's handicap preferred, and that means just that, that if there's a handicapped person available, a disability a person with disability available, they can have it, but if, if there isn't, uh, somebody else who's eligible can have it. And the only thing that seems possible, Pierre, that you might want to think about is that if 
later on, once you've taken the place, which I hope you'll enjoy, somebody comes around who is, uh, does have a disability, who would uh, take advantage of the disability-related features of the apartment, uh, you might want to say to the landlord, look, if, if you have a, another apartment available for me, I'd, I'm happy to swap out in order that this person should have it. Um, but I think that taking the apartment right now is something that's absolutely permissible. Indeed, the policy itself permits it. Yes, I think the crucial word here is preference, not handicapped only. And I felt also that the very nice and generous thing to do would be to say to the landlord, look, I love this uh, apartment, but should somebody um, who has the need for a handicapped um, altered apartment um, come up and apply for it, I would be willing to move to make this apartment available to them. But that seems um, that seems a very generous thing to do, although an admirable thing to do, and I would certainly encourage that attitude. But I don't think that your mere presence in a handicapped uh, preferred loft is going to make handicapped people somehow unable to apply to rent it. Certainly, you're not going to say they can never come and view the apartment. And it sounds like so far, nobody who has a need for that apartment has even applied. Um, And I'm not sure that keeping it unoccupied would actually help any of the handicapped citizens out there who might in the future be interested in the loft. So I think you can definitely take it. And the generous thing to do would be to offer to move to some other loft should somebody who has a real need for the apartment come onto the scene. Yeah, this is one of the rare instances, I think, where we can uh, sort of bless the (laughs) uh, thing that the person wants to do and say that it is also ethical, because I think usually people write to us uh, in order uh, to get, with this kind of gnawing sense that something is uh, not ethical, but really wanting to do it. But, you know, I think in this case, it's it's totally ethical for the reasons that uh, both Amy and Anthony have laid out. Yeah, I do think this is different from a curb cut uh, in that, you know, joint use is not a per, you know, a, you know, possible, right? That, that, you know, somebody is occupying the apartment. Um, but, you know, as, as both of you are saying, you know, my, my only qualm about this is that if you are uh, in the, um, I was trying to think through the analogies and, and think about why uh, handicapped restrooms are, really handicap preferred, right? And nobody's going right. to fine you or bar you from using it. It's just a nicer thing to do not to use it because, you know, uh, people with disabilities have no other option. And then you do have other options. So generally you steer yourself away from those. Uh, but if you need to use it, you use it. And I think that's probably the most analogous one. Uh, I think the parking space is uh, not analogous to this instance because in that case, you know, as both of you pointed out, those are not just handicapped preferred, they're kind of handicapped only. And the reason that they're handicapped only is because demand for those spaces, which are the premium spaces in any kind of uh, parking configuration, uh, are things that everybody wants. But here, uh, the demand does not seem to exist. And so I think, and, and also it's not, you know, handicapped only. So I think that you're um, not there. So when I'm thinking about curb cuts, um, parking spaces, and you know, handicapped restrooms in between. I think this is most like the restroom, which is to say, you know, generally don't take it because there are some people who can only use that restroom. But if no other restroom is available and it's open, then take it. So we say to you, enjoy your lovely loft in your tactfully unnamed Midwestern city. Let's dive on to the next letter.
And let's just say that Larry David may already be in this apartment. He may be the other bidder. Happily. (laughs) I suspect scooting around on a chair. (laughs) Dear ethicists, I represent a real estate developer in Florida. One of our client's tenants is a national supermarket chain. Recently, one of the tenant's employees, with whom I have a positive email relationship, confided in me that he had overheard an administrator tell another employee that she had just read a book called The Protocols of Zion and thought it contained excellent points. The person with whom she was speaking, a department manager, responded that he'd also read that book, that it was great, and that it must be legitimate because it had been published and endorsed by Henry Ford. I'm uncomfortable that this type of conversation might reflect a negative aspect of our tenants' culture, but then again, perhaps it's under the radar for the top-tier staff. I'm tempted to raise this with the general counsel of the company with whom I negotiated the lease and with whom I have a positive but formal relationship, but for what purpose? I can't betray the confidence, so I can't give details. So then what am I trying to accomplish? I can't get over that employees working at a respective grocery chain could really accept any premise in that anti-Semitic rant. I thought the reach of the protocols was limited to uneducated neo-Nazis, but these are educated people in positions of authority. Something just feels wrong here, and I'd appreciate some guidance on where to go with this. Sincerely, name withheld, Florida. There are a lot of things that come to mind about this question, including how often people suddenly encounter a book called The Protocols of Zion and think that it contains excellent points. (laughs) I wish that I thought this never happened or rarely happened or it happened only in tiny little corners of America, but I suspect that it is not the case. Um, I assume that your goal is to stamp out anti-Semitism and to try to alter an atmosphere of a business if you think that it encourages anti-Semitism, which is really no way of knowing at this particular point. But you don't have any authority over the culture of this tenant corporation. Um, It seems to me that if you wish to tell your client, um, which is the real estate developer, what you heard, I think you can do that. If you wish to tell your pal, the general counsel, what you heard without naming names, I think that's okay too. I think you can you can share this information, and I would say not only that you don't need to give any names, I would suggest that you not give any names because my own feeling is you didn't hear it. You are passing on something that you have been told. And I would say that actively and ethically you might want to encourage your pal, the employee who wrote to you about this, to share the information at work um, to people who have some responsibility for their company's culture. Um, I think that um, the personal part of, of, of what you write in the letter is that you can't get over that. You're just stunned that um, anybody except uneducated neo-Nazis would <laughs> um, accept something like the Protocols of Zion and think, oh, there's some really good points in here. Um, something is wrong there, and part of what is wrong is that... Um, anti-Semitism, although it is not what it was in this country, which was terrible and pervasive and uniformly accepted, is not gone. 
Yeah, I think that the, my, my my first response to this letter was to be, in a way, puzzled by uh, by the author's uh, surprise because I'm afraid that I think that uh, there's pretty good reason to think that uh, stupid anti-Semitic beliefs and uh, idiotic deference to the views of rich people like Henry Ford are quite pervasive in our country and and in many others. So while, as Amy says correctly, we're not nearly as horrifically anti-Semitic as we once were as a country, um, it's definitely out there in the land. And this sort of belief in in uh, the protocols of the elders of Zionists so or that sort of thing is unfortunately um, definitely out there. So um, now the question, though, is for me is uh, I, I slightly worry that there's a reason why the person who spoke to our, our letter writer to you um, thinks uh, doesn't you know that that you treat it as a confidence because that suggests that that person thinks that for example it's possible that if if news gets back to the company that he or she told uh, about this information, it'll it'll be it'll come out that he or she told you, and then she'll get into trouble with people she works for, and so on. So I would I would say first of all, I would t- talk to the person who told you this and say, look, I want to understand. I'd like your permission to raise the matter in a way that doesn't identify you, because I think your company will want to know uh, that this is going on, and uh, it'll be up to the company then to figure out how to change its culture. There are actually people who consult with companies which have these sorts of problems, and I'm sure there are people who can help you uh, change a business culture in which this sort of thing is going on. So, and But I do think that if the person who told you told you in strict confidence, that is, told you something on condition that you didn't pass it on, then I'm afraid you can't pass it on unless they give you permission. Yeah, I think what you could always do is to encourage the informant to go forward with the information. Um, but I, I'm also a little bit worried that the informant, if they go forward with it, might run into the concerns that you've raised, Antony, about not being in the correct sort of or, or the appropriate power position to be able to make the change. So my instinct, and this is a cautious, lawyerly instinct, uh, is just to say to the informant, I will record what you just said to me uh, so you can you know, call upon me to support your um, claims later on if need be so that uh, you know, if somewhere down the line, you know, people with these kinds of attitudes generally don't change unless <laughs> some external force is uh, placed on them, uh, if uh, even that can make a difference. So we expect that what the informant and the letter writer are fearing is that this is going to have a recrudescence sometime in the future. And so I think at that point, it's uh, important, both as a matter of law, we have this thing called the stray remarks doctrine about how something isn't, you know, uh, part of a hostile work environment or creating a hostile work environment if it's just a stray remark. And so to show that it's not a stray remark, to tell the uh, informant that you are willing to back them up with this record. I have a question about that. So if the stray remark is different from the atmosphere of the hostile workplace, um, how is our letter writer recording uh, my friend told me about the stray remark. Is that because you'd want to then create a, a trail of that? Exactly. For yeah. a future? So I will record this now, 
And I'll also keep track if you hear more of these remarks so I can support you. Right, it's, exactly. It's, it's what happens in the future. Exactly. That okay. Right now, it looks like this is just the defense could be this is a stray mar- remark. This is a one-off. We're not creating a hostile environment for anybody, you know, assuming this is an employee, employment and environment. Um, but if you actually were able to say that wasn't just a one-time deal, and in fact there's been a kind of pattern and practice of this over time, then uh, you actually have something that will definitely make the general counsel of the company, you know, take notice. I realize that's responding in a very legalistic way, but you know, I'm, at least I, I hope I'm attentive to the fact that you know ethics and law sort of tack together and tack apart. And I think here they tack together. Here I think the law gets it right with regard to the appropriate ethical standard as well. I think so, and I think we're also saying. We would encourage you, as we so often do, to have the direct conversation with the person who shared you, shared this information with you. And we also understand why that person might be reluctant to go forward at this point. <clears throat> there may be other opportunities, I'm sorry to say, to uh, bring forth um, records of conversations with more remarks that become less and less stray and more and more pointed. And we would encourage you to stay engaged with this issue and not just turn your back to it. And now, on to our last question. Dear ethicists, I'm currently going through a very nasty divorce. My sister-in-law, an avowed intellectual and feminist, and I have remained friends until recently when she decided she wanted to be neutral. I understand this, in theory. However, her brother is not an innocent participant in this situation. He abandoned me. He engaged in adultery, abusive language, disparaging remarks to others about me. He has disparaged my race, intellect, and being. Now he is trying to give me as little as possible in the divorce settlement. Yet, no one wants to know. I think we have an obligation to stand up and say wrong when we see it, rather than say neutral. Doesn't his lack of morals and decency towards his ex-wife make a statement about who he is? Shouldn't every conscientious person take a stand? Can we just get on with our lives and not care about how others we once liked are treated? Sincerely, name withheld. So first, I'm sorry you're going through a nasty divorce, uh, but I think that the pain of the divorce may be blinding you, the letter writer, to the needs and concerns of others. And uh, here I go to Elaine Scarry, who wrote this brilliant book, The Body in Pain, where she says one thing that pain does is to conscribe our circle of concern, to conscribe how much we can empathize with each other at a purely cognitive level. And I think that may be what's going on here. Because my view of this was before you ask why your sister-in-law won't put herself uh, in your position, you might think about why you're so unwilling to put yourself in hers. Because this is her brother uh, we're talking about. And your sister-in-law may find it impossible to cast him off, no matter how reprehensible his behavior towards you has been. So, you know, when I read this letter, and I tried to read it very carefully, when you say that your sister-in-law was friendly towards you and then switched to neutral, I sort of thought, well, is that right? I mean, her feelings toward you may be exactly as warm as they ever have been. It's just now that she has to choose. And they say that one thing that gets divided up in divorces are, you know, friends and, and relatives who have to take sides. And I'm frankly very sympathetic to your sister-in-law's apparent desire not to let that happen. And I'm afraid less sympathetic to your sense that there's only one way to see your situation. What do you think, Anthony? 
Well, I, I, I agree that this letter doesn't seem to me to be sufficiently attentive to the fact that the sister-in-law is almost certainly being uh, pulled in two directions here. Uh, the fact that uh, a sibling of yours has done a bad thing, uh, 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 for better or worse, doesn't usually mean that you're going to have to uh, abandon them or, or take the sides, as they say, the side of, of a party whom they've wronged. In general, we think of ourselves as committed to our families, for uh, to our birth families, to our sibs, uh, the people we grew up with sort of indefinitely. And so in a divorce like this, um, there is a real challenge, I think, uh, the challenge that the sister-in-law is facing, which is um, how do I get through this knowing that I'm going to be my brother's sister for the rest of our lives, uh, but also uh, not, uh, and, and therefore I'm not willing to uh, take sides against him. But on the other hand, I, I can see that I may be able to see that he's done something that he shouldn't have. I don't feel I can uh, d do anything about that while maintaining my relationship with my brother. I mean, I think it would help you to get clear here about what it is that you want. Um, if you want a, a good settlement, I suggest the right way to do that is to get a great lawyer. Um, I don't think that your sister-in-law is either um, psychologically or legally in a very good position to help you with that. Um, if you want the sense that someone is on your side, well, um, then I think you have to, you can only think about that question once you've realized why it is that uh, she can't be on your side. Uh, and, and the reason presumably is that she feels that uh, she is, as it were, stuck with or stuck to her brother. One other th little thing I worried about slightly, you say that no one wants to know what's going on. That suggests that your sister-in-law isn't the only person who hasn't taken your side. And again, since we're outside of all of this, and this is a very nasty divorce, and we're outsiders to it, I think I'm inclined to say that I hope you will ask yourself whether there isn't a reason why um, uh, no one wants to know and uh, and that that may be that your assessment of the situation may not be uh, one that everybody shares. I think that's the hardest thing to face. Again, it comes up this question of fairness and the idea of this being about ethical behavior. The letter writer says, shouldn't every conscientious person take a stand? And I think we here at The Ethicist would go, yes, every conscientious person should take a stand, but not necessarily on the subject of their brother's divorce and how much money he is offering in the middle of the divorce settlement to his soon-to-be ex-wife. Can we just get on with our lives and not care about how others we once liked are treated? Well, first of all, the answer to that, unfortunately, is, yup, we sure can. And the other thing is, it's not about um, what is wrong with your sister-in-law. And when Kenji spoke earlier about the, the tit-for-tat and the wish to engage in pettiness, um, diminishing your sister-in-law by referring to her as an avowed intellectual and feminist, which I read to mean actually kind of stupid and not a feminist at all, is not going to make things better. Um, you can, you, I think if you think about it, and especially if you have siblings, can understand some of the wish to be neutral, which, by the way, let me point out, is certainly a lot nicer than um, being active against you, which... She might have plenty of information since you had been friends before. 
Um, it's awful going through a divorce. And probably more divorces are nasty than not. Um, but I don't think that your in-laws have an obligation to stand up and say wrong when they hear from you the details of the divorce. I have seen some friends go through some very nasty divorces, and there are certainly points at which you want people to stand up and say, this was wrong. But I think to expect it from the sister of the man you're in the process of of divorcing, getting divorced from, seems to me to be holding her to um, an exceptional standard of behavior and one that, as Kendry points out, and as both of you point out, you might want to think to yourself what it would be like if I were in her situation and that empathy would be an important thing for you to demonstrate as well as to hope for consideration from your former sister-in-law. And that's it for The Ethicist. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicist at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212-556-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Carrie Hillman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Anthony Appiah and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom. We'll talk to you next week on The Ethicist.